Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel uh, Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here, the Eagle Hill Landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 181 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 9, Lunar Module Maneuvers Part 2. We ended the last episode, number 180, just as the command module and the lunar module separated from the S-4B. For the first time, the Apollo-spacecraft combination was flying free in space. Now, McDivitt's crew turned to another trailblazing task, firing the service module propulsion system. Astronauts had in the past used one vehicle to push another into higher orbit, but never a craft as big as the lander. Some six hours into the mission, they made the first test burn, which lasted five seconds. Flight controllers in Houston considered this the most critical of the docked service module engine firings. Scott must have agreed with them because he exclaimed, quote, the limb is still there, end quote. McDivitt later said that the engine had come on abruptly, but with the tremendous mass, acceleration was very slow. It took the whole five seconds to add 11 meters per second to the speed. Sixteen hours after this short burst, there was a second propulsion system ignition, lasting 110 seconds. This included gimbling the engine to find out whether the guidance and navigation system's autopilot could steady the spacecraft. The autopilot stilled the motions within five seconds. The crewmen grew more and more confident that they could handle their machines, and that was a good thing, since they next had to make a 280-second burn to produce an added velocity of 783 meters per second. This lightened the service module's fuel load by 8,462 kilograms and made it easier to turn the vehicles with the reaction control jets. The firing also altered the flight path and raised the apogee of the orbit from 357 to 509 kilometers to provide better ground tracking and lighting conditions during the rendezvous. Scott later reported that they had the sensation that the dock vehicles were bending slightly in the tunnel area, but the maneuver produced oscillations only one-third to one-half as large 
as they had expected from training. As the big engine fired, McDivitt commented, quote, SPS is no sweat, end quote. The astronauts were growing so used to the propulsion system that they hardly mentioned its fourth burn. Perhaps they were thinking of their next trailblazing chore, when two of them would crawl into the lunar module and check out its systems. Here's how Mr. Cronkite reported the SPS testing. But actually yesterday the day was spent in testing the service propulsion system engine, the 20,500-pound engine that is uh, the most critical engine perhaps on the uh, whole uh, moon mission. It was tested uh, three times yesterday, worked well in each case, and in uh, those maneuvers boosted the altitude of the spacecraft to some 300 miles. At T-plus 41 hours, it was just about time to enter the lunar module for the first time. After the astronauts woke in the morning and ate breakfast, McDivitt and Swigert put on their pressure suits, but suddenly Swigert vomited. Fortunately, he kept his mouth shut until he could reach a bag. Although he did not feel particularly nauseated, both he and McDivitt became slightly disoriented when getting into their suits. For a second, they could not tell up from down which gave them a queasy feeling. Since Scott was already dressed, he removed the command module hatch, the probe, and the drogue from the tunnel so his colleagues could get into the lunar module. Swikert slid easily through the 81-centimeter tunnel, opened the lunar module hatch, and went next door in the first intervehicular transfer in space. After he had flipped all the necessary switches, Swigert reported that the lander was certainly noisy, especially its environmental control system. McGivitt followed Swigert into the lunar module an hour later. Now I have a clip explaining how the astronauts performed the entry into the lunar module, and we will first hear from North American and then Grumman. Bill Stout is with the uh, test astronaut Leo Krupp at North American Rockwell and Downey. Why don't you gentlemen come in first? Well, Walter, as you said, it certainly is one of the more critical maneuvers in this entire mission, one of the touchiest, and one that's never been performed before. Leo, how do they go about it? How complicated is it, and who does what inside the command spacecraft? Well, Bill, it isn't too complicated. However, there is quite a bit of work involved. Uh, why don't we just run through a simulation here in our mock-up and show you what the crew performed uh, earlier this morning. Uh, Dave Scott went down into the lower equipment bay, and we're now looking up the tunnel, looking at the command module uh, hatch in the tunnel, and Dave is opening the pressure equalization valve to be sure that the pressure on both sides of the tunnel are equal. As soon as that is performed, he releases the actuating handle and takes one pump on the actuating handle, which releases the hatch from the dogs, and the pressure hatch is now free to be removed from the hatch into the command module. Now this hatch weighs 75 pounds, but in a weightless condition, the weight is not important. However, the rapidity in which you move it is. So he moves it very slowly, hands it to Jim McDivitt, and it is stowed underneath the left couch. Uh, Dave then went back into the tunnel to remove the probe. Now the first thing he'll do is disconnect the probe umbilicals from the tunnel wall and put them on the storage brackets on the probe itself. Even though they're in their spacesuits, Leo, they're not pressurized at this point. Right? That's right. They're in, a, they're in their pressure suits, but they're in a vented condition, so their mobility is very good. Is that dangerous? 
Uh, no, the reason they're in their suits is in the event that we should lose pressurization. They're in a safe configuration. Their suits will pressurize and the, the crew will be in a safe environment. As soon as the, uh, the umbilicals are stowed, then he takes the actuating handle and releases the probe, which collapses it. He then releases the capture latches by turning the knob on the, on the end of the probe, and he's then free to pull the probe away from the drogue and bring it into the command module. Now, this piece of hardware weighs 83 pounds. And again, it's not difficult to handle, but you do have to move it slowly. Now, this is handed to Rusty Swigart, who stowed it underneath the right couch. The only thing holding the two vehicles together at this time are the 12 capture latches that are engaged around the, the, the docking rings. The last piece of tunnel hardware to be removed is the, the drogue itself. And uh, that is very simple to remove. You just release a lock and turn it about 10 degrees and it comes free. He then has to turn it 90 degrees to line it up and it just barely fits between the tunnel ring and he also brings that into the command module. Even, even in a weightless state, Leo, isn't this a great deal of exertion for one man? Well, this is the highest workload that we have uh, for one man and Dave Scott, I can assure you, is getting his exercises. I hope he had Wheaties for breakfast this morning. Now, the last uh, piece of uh, equipment to be opened up is the LEM hatch, which will uh, be opened up, and the tunnel is then free for the crew to move through to the lunar module. And at the Grumman plant on Long Island, Steve Rowan is standing by with pilot Scott McLeod to continue our entrance into the LM. Well, we're, we're going to be able to show you that hatch opening. There it's opening now as Scott McLeod uh, simulates the action that Rusty Schweikert will take or took this morning, we should say, coming through that tunnel. This hatch is a lot lighter than the hatch on the command module. Rusty opens it, uh, lets it down, and then starts climbing in. He's coming in head first, as you see, uh, with his face toward the panel. The first thing he does as he comes in is just check to make sure that uh, the two overhead lights are on. He's already checked the docking collar to make sure that... Uh, that, that, that those 12 capture latches are connected all right. And uh, there are a couple of overhead floodlights on, giving him a little bit of light as he comes in. And he does it very carefully. This is a, the first time that uh, a man has entered that lamb out in space. And so Rusty will have done that very, very carefully this morning, just as our consulting pilot, Scott McLeod, is doing it here. And he goes over and gets a radiation survey meter. The first thing that he wants to do is just check and find out how much solar radiation may have bled through the walls of the LEM in the couple of days it's been in space. And he checks the spacecraft thoroughly with that radiation survey meter. Well, that check apparently went all right uh, early this morning because both men are now, not only Rusty Schweikert, but Jim McDivitt, the commander, uh, are in the LEM at this hour. But this is what happened earlier this morning, as simulated by Scott McLeod in our mock-up lamb here at Grumman. And then uh, he checks down to uh, open the um, water valve, the descent stage water valve. And uh, that's the, about the first thing that he does. And the reason is that he wants to unstow the water gun he's doing right now and that gun can also be used as a foam gun if there were any sudden emergency as they power up the lamb and they had a fire of any kind uh, they would be able to use that as a foam gun then they uh, remove the interim stowage assembly bag which has been 
hanging in front of the panel and put it back to the left in the rear of the cabin over the uh, portable life support system. And uh, the next thing that uh, comes up is that Rusty goes over, reaches over that handle there and turns up the lights in the spacecraft, turns on all the floodlights and all the panel lights. Um, then he uh, takes his position, the lunar module pilot position, over on the right side of the spacecraft and reaching down, he gets those restraining hooks, as Walter Cronkite has said, they do not have couches or seats in the land, they have uh, restraining cords that uh, hold the astronauts down. So once Rusty's done that, uh, he's prepared to go ahead and power up the lamb, and Jim McDivitt, of course, is prepared to come through and join him in the lamb, where both men are now. At T plus 46 hours and 28 minutes, it was time for the first TV transmission from the lunar module. The astronauts would be using a brand new TV camera for the broadcast. Here's a clip on the camera. Now, one of the things that is attracting attention down here is the camera that the astronauts will use on board the LAM this morning. It's a new first-time use object. It weighs about seven pounds and it's very simple, just a box, a lens, and a handle. Very simple to use but very complex on the outside. The lens is sort of an amateur's delight. You don't have to focus it. You don't have to set the exposure. You just aim across the top and, and uh, take, take pictures and hopefully send them back to Earth. The camera was developed at a cost of something over $7 million. There's 17 of them in existence, which makes the price about $450,000 each. One of its qualities is it's good at taking pictures in the dark. In fact, sometimes the camera sees more than you do. And it is in use for the first time in space this morning on the limb. And to see how it is being used on that vehicle, we go to Steve Rowan at Grumman Aircraft in Bethpage, Long Island. Well, Nelson, the LEM this time actually carries the camera, the television camera, in the crew compartment right here. And that, Scotty, is the only time that it's going to happen that way, isn't it? Yes, that's correct, Steve. Uh, on the next flight, it's indeterminate as to whether they will carry it or not. But if they do, it could be mounted on the front porch to show photographs when you're making an approach to the lunar surface. And then on the lunar landing mission, it'll be uh, mounted in a in an equipment panel that's actually in the descent stage, uh, how will it be used there? Well, there the LEM pilot will go out on the front porch, go down about two steps, and then the camera can take photographs of him as he goes down to the surface. But this time, Walter, it's right here in, in the uh, cabin, and they'll be using it in a few minutes. Within a few minutes, the television camera was unstowed and the astronaut activities were beamed to the Earth. Here's an edited clip of the TV broadcast. Okay, I'm not reading Gumdrop at all, uh, and I am reading you uh, loud and clear now, and the TV picture has been real good. Uh, you're coming through loud and clear, Rusty. Uh, it's real good. Okay, we have to go to uh, PCC uh, on the end of the road. Is that maybe uh, I see a 
Swigert shut themselves off in the limb from Scott in the command module by closing their hatch while Scott was sealing himself off from the spider. Here's what Scott was doing while he was alone in the command module. We can go now out to Downey, California, to the plant of North American Rockwell where the command ship is built, and there Bill Stout and Leo Krupp can tell us what David Scott, alone in the command module, is doing at this time. Walter, you'll recall from our last uh, look at what was happening inside the spacecraft when they first moved from one to the other, you'll recall that Dave Scott did most of the work. Leo, after hauling that equipment back and forth and uh, after getting rid of his shipmates when they moved into the Lynn, what did Scott have to do? What's he doing now? Well, Bill, after the, uh, the crew went over into the lunar module, Dave had all the work to do to put this equipment back in place. So probably the bulk of the time was devoted to taking the, uh, the drogue out of stowage underneath your couch and putting it back in place, then reinstalling the probe and then reinstalling the, the tunnel hatch. He had to do this entirely by himself because the other two fellows are over in the lunar module. But uh, the reason we want to put it back in the hatch, in the tunnel, by the way, is the, uh, the fact that later on this morning we're going to do a burn with the lunar module engine, and we don't want the, this heavy equipment in the command module because we cannot store it properly in, properly in the command module. The only place to really store it properly is back in the tunnel to take care of the accelerations during the burn that's going to be coming up later. And back where it belongs. That's right. And also another item that Dave has taken care of is he's broken out of storage the, the docking target that will be used in the command module. Now this is the target that McDivitt will be looking at when he's doing 
the lunar uh, module active docking. Now, it's the same type of target that we have on the limb that Dave Scott used when he did the transposition and docking, except it's about half the size. Now, as you see now, this is the standoff cross and this is the back cross. Both of these items are lighted, so they'll be easily visible to Jim. As you can see now, it looks like we're low, we're low and to the right, so McDivitt would have to maneuver the, the limb to superimpose this standoff cross on the back cross. So he would maneuver his vehicle until the standoff cross looks like this. He's then on the proper line of sight. He would next maneuver the, the lunar module in attitude to put his gun sight or his uh, pipper on the head of the uh, standoff cross. He then has his attitude proper. So once he has uh, superimposed the standoff cross and put his, his sight on the target, he's in proper position then to move in and dock. And he would then go ahead and close on the vehicle, maintaining between... 0.25 and one foot per second until the probe and drogue mate. Now Dave has gotten this out of stowage and has installed it in your window so McDivitt can look at this while he's in the lunar module at this time and he can see if there's any misalignments due to manufacturing tolerances because he can look through his window now and see that while he is in a dock position this cross is superimposed and his pipper is on the target. So if you'd like Bill you can go ahead and install it in the window and show how it fits up there. Well, I'll try, Leo. I, I don't really know. Walter, as, uh, as Leo mentioned, that uh, 0.25 feet per second, I'm sure they don't have this problem in the spacecraft, Leo, but this one won't go in right now. As, as you mentioned about uh, 0.25 feet per second the other day, that's roughly equivalent to less than one-fifth of a mile per hour, and it's incredible that at uh, orbital speed and outer space, they can close with that kind of tolerance, and yet they are. Yeah, when you figure that together, they're moving 17,500 miles an hour, but the relative speed is only that. It is pretty amazing. Meanwhile, back in the limb, Swigert pushed the button, and the lunar module's legs sprang smartly into place. After the vehicles were separated, the lunar module would be able to flip over so the command module pilot could make sure all four legs were in the proper position. Then, Swigert got sick again, and McDivitt asked for a private conversation with the medical people. Although the news media were quickly informed of Swigert's problem, this request for a private discussion was like waving a red flag, causing repercussions and a spate of unfriendly stories. I have three clips now from Mr. Cronkite as he gradually received more information from NASA on Swigert's condition. Uh, about an hour after the astronauts this morning climbed into that lunar module, they requested a private conversation with the ground. That is one that would not be relayed to the public, and they spent 14 minutes in that conversation. Uh, we have not been told what the conversation was about, uh, usually, uh, or, or could indicate uh, some problem, uh, personal problem or otherwise, in the spacecraft. The last time uh, such a private conversation was held from space uh, to the Manned Space Center in Houston was during the last flight, the Apollo 8 moon orbit flight, and that was the private conversation which revealed for the first time, but not to us in the public yet, that uh, Frank Borman was uh, nauseated on that flight. Whether they've got any problems up there in this conversation, well, we simply haven't been told by NASA yet. A moment ago, we uh, spoke of the uh, fact that there was a private conversation. 
between the uh, astronauts in the LEM uh, and the ground a little earlier this morning. It should be made clear, I think, that that was uh, almost uh, an hour and a half ago now, and since then there have been a lot of uh, uh, transmissions between the spacecraft and the ground that have been relayed to us, uh, the public, uh, by NASA. So quite clearly the men are all right. There's no uh, serious problem of that nature, but something uh, was transmitted uh, in silence uh, as far as the public goes between the two spacecraft. Uh, we have a word from Mission Control now on what the private conversation was about, and oddly enough, it's uh, not dissimilar to the one during Apollo 8, because it turns out that Rusty Schweiker did feel some nausea this morning. Uh, he's okay now. They're continuing with the flight plan as scheduled. Back at Mission Control, Chris Kraft knew what was going on immediately, and he was angry that McDivitt had waited so long to inform Mission Control that Schweikert was sick. Apparently, Schweikert had been space-sicked almost from the beginning of the flight. Kraft knew it was almost time to perform more crucial maneuvers of the mission, and Mission Control was just now finding out about Schweikert's illness. If the astronauts had reported sooner, the flight surgeons would have prescribed medications that could have eliminated Schweikert's symptoms so they would not affect the mission. As a side note, the whole Schweikert episode had an unfortunate fallout. The astronaut image had always been one of physical strength and fortitude. When Schweikert got space sick and stayed space sick so long, it made him seem weak, and his reputation never recovered. A little later, Schweikert felt the impulse to vomit again. It came on just as suddenly as it had earlier while Schweikert was busy flipping switches. Afterward, he felt much better and moved around the cabin normally, but he lost his appetite for anything except liquids and fruits for the remainder of the voyage. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.